Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with the incomparable Tina Spring. And today we have a really interesting guest all the way from Sweden. It's Caroline Alupo, and she did her master's work and thesis on PTSD in dogs. She's an ethologist and dog behaviorist, and she's joining us today to talk about PTSD in dogs. So thank you so much for joining us today, Caroline. I was so excited to get your email that you wanted to come talk to us because this is the kind of thing I think most dog owners really need to know something about because their dog may be more traumatized than they realize. And so anyway, welcome and Tina, you get the first question. Welcome to the podcast, Caroline. We're excited to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm so, so excited to be here. So, so, so excited. Right. What time is it there? Uh, it's seven o'clock in the evening. Oh, so not too terrible. Great. No, it's, no, it's not 1 bad. p.m. here. So okay. That's, okay. sun's out, birds are singing. Um, so yeah. this is a topic I'm very, very interested in. Uh, I happen to work. Part of my um, my practice is with feral dogs from Turks and Caicos and the Bahamas and Grenada and and all that that have been adopted into homes around the world uh, and the struggles that those dogs are having, uh, even if they're adopted as very young puppies. So I'm gonna be I'm gonna be taking lots of notes and potentially reaching out to you in the future too with, with more questions. So the first thing I want to ask, I think for me, because I'm going to be nosy about these, these dogs that are near and dear to my heart, I have two in my home is do we see generational trauma, PTSD responses in dogs that are living in environments where they're quite at risk in the environment? right? Mm -hmm. From people and other dogs and cars and all of the things. Yeah. Oh, I love this question. I actually, uh, the dog that got me into this was a rescue I took on. And in Sweden, I also have a lot of clients that have taken on rescues from abroad and like from Ukraine, Spain, Russia, for instance. So, so these are, are quite common on my client list. And absolutely, I share your thoughts there about, you know, trauma be, being really generational. Yeah, trauma being generational. Because we yeah, know it's generational. It, it absolutely can be generational in people. I assume that it would, that there's a uh, an advantage to that from a development standpoint, from a survival standpoint. We know that it can be generational in humans. So I would assume that there's an advantage to that for dogs as well. Absolutely. And we see that puppies can be affected when they're actually in the womb with a mother dog. And if she's very stressed out, so will they become because that's how their brain is like standardized from an extremely early age. So we see that a lot. And I mean, being brought up as a young puppy with a really stressed mother dog, I mean, that does affect them. And as well, if the environment is really harsh and bad. And, and, and so absolutely. Could you, um, before we go any further, I think maybe we ought to have a definition of what trauma is so that we're all on the same page. 
So um, I think that's a great question because one of the things that I, I know that I have learned is that one of the problems with a highly stressed mother is that the babies are both bathed in cortisol in utero, and that has long-lasting permanent effects on the development of this of this dog and long-lasting life. But let's talk about what trauma is exactly. So if you mm. could, your definition, then we'll be all on the same page. Yeah, and what we're talking about here is psychological trauma, not physical trauma, even if those two can absolutely be connected. Uh, and PTSD is like an anxiety disorder, really, where the, the memory gets stuck in the close everyday memory rather than is processed and in the backlog of the dog. So the dog will react to triggers of the event that traumatized them as if it's actually happening, re-happening again and over and over again. Um, so it's a psychological trauma that causes a, an, an anxiety disorder, one could say. And the events that that some people tend to think that, you know, you can look at their trauma event and say a dog that has been subjected to this or, or have been in this form of an accident or been, been subjected to this abuse will be traumatized, which is not true. About 30% of dogs that actually... Uh, experience the same kind of trauma, develop PTSD. The other 70%, they will slowly recuperate on their own. They might still be a little bit scared of, you know, the car or men or other dogs or whatever the trigger is, but they will not develop PTSD in the same way as, as another than 30% who will. So it's kind of like, we don't know what makes some kids who fall off their bike, get up, rub dirt on it and go again. And other children, the bike is dead to them. They are never going to ride a bicycle again. That was just way too traumatic. Um, so it really is the trauma is in the brain of the beholder, the, the study of one, of who it happened to. So the exact same thing could happen to all three of us. One of us may have a traumatic response to that. The other two will be like, wow, that was a lot, but have better resilience to bounce back, right? Am I understanding exactly. that correctly? There's been studies done on twins who, who like grown up people have gone to war and one and come back, develop PTSD and the other hasn't. Uh, and that's really interesting. And in dogs, we look at, you know, what genetics, is there anything there, you know, making a dog more susceptible to, to PTSD or is it the age frame or um, you know, is it has it got to do with with diet, you know, and the, and, and the social network, which is relevant for humans, if they're in a traumatic event and has this social network that helps them or if they get real fast treatment uh, and that lowers the risk. We see that in dogs as well. Dogs that, that do experience traumatic events and get treatment fast, they we minimize the risk of, of developing PTSD. Yeah, I think a lot of it just depends on, you know, it could be that if something happened to me today, I'd be fine, but tomorrow I may be traumatized. I think there's sometimes it's, it, there's just so many factors, it's hard to to actually say when trauma is going to occur to cause PTSD. But the treatment of PTSD, if you do develop it, um, is, you mentioned in your paper that it's a psychological as well as a physiological disorder. So I would think that treatment would have to include both psychological as well as physiological responses. Can you address that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. When I look at it, I look, I see it as a triangle, you know, at the top of the triangle, we have the 
dog's response to a trigger, a primary or secondary trigger that's related to the event, something reminding the dog of this nightmare the dog has been through. Uh, and in the middle, we have the dog's emotions that arise when they, they encounter this and trigger, whether it's a smell or a, or, or a sight of something or, or a sound. And at the base of it, we have the dog's overall welfare, which could be affected by you know nutrition or physical exercise and activation and training and also pain in the body or diseases. And when we treat these dogs, we want to start at the bottom and, and make the base as optimal as possible. And that often starts with, because uh, these dogs, what, what they normally develop, um, apart from, from the psychological stress that they carry, is also stomach issues in the form of loose stools, diarrhea, stressed stomach, IBS kind of thing, or constipation or vomiting. They have like a disrupted and stressed stomach. And also sleep is often affected because there's a hypervigilance. They're always on the you know, edge and, and can't really relax and sleep. And in my study, some dog owners also stated that they uh, experienced their dog developing nightmares after the traumatic event. So they started sleeping either with you know, one eye open or woke up and, and howled or, or barked or started running you know, frantically. And another thing regarding the physical uh, part is that these dogs often they have like a body posture due to their anxiety or their stress. They'll crouch their back up, they'll tug their tail in a little bit, or the ones that are more offensive in, in, in their reactions will, you know, broaden their, their legs and stand up straight and they'll tense their body. And this can make them really stiff and sore and they have muscle aches. So I always want a vet to check the dog out and a dog physiotherapist who works with, you know, force-free treatment plans that don't only just go in and, and massage those muscles and stretches those legs out, but actually knows that there's anxiety in this tension. So it's a really a very gentle treatment. Uh, and another important thing is sleep, of course, like I mentioned, to get these dogs sleeping and sleeping real, real long and good. And even in the daytime, you know, get their hours in because they need so much sleep. They're constantly drained with the stress. And nutrition is key. I always want to put these dogs on a raw diet, lots of nutrition, omega-3. I want them to have B vitamins and magnesium and tryptophan, you know, and really boost them to be able to tackle the behavior, the, the emotional process we want to help them with later on. Um, and the next treatment, you know, when we get to the emotional side, we want to look at what's on the opposite side of the emotional wheel of distress and fright and anger. Uh, well, we have joy and we have lust and we have curiosity in play. So we want to really boost that before we even start trigger training. And this is what most people do wrong. They focus so much on the dog's reaction when they see that man coming or the dog coming or they hear that firework. Uh, instead of working with this triangle theory and starting at the bottom and working the way up. Because what I see is that quite a lot of dogs, when we do this, they their reactions to the triggers, they decrease and, and they're not as frightened anymore. Or when we boost so much curiosity and play and lust, it's so much easier for them to tackle the trigger training that can otherwise very easily become flooding, um, meaning that we overstress the animal, uh, the dog in this case. Uh, and that just worsens the situation, of course. Right. I call it picking at a scab, right? Like our OBGYN knows not to begin with the main event. Yeah. Instead, they demoralize us by weighing us. So the, um, but lots of people are like, well, I want to go right to the thing that freaks the dog out. And I'm like, we, we cannot 
successfully begin there. It's kind of like you can't focus on sleeping and fall asleep. It doesn't work that way. You have to focus on relaxing so that you fall asleep because sleep is a a wonderful neighbor to relaxation. So uh, how are you diagnosing that a dog is reactive or anxious versus uh, PTSD? Super great question, Tina. Well, I look when there's an event, like me, with the rescue dogs, we often don't know what's happened to them. We just know that they have symptoms similar to PTSD. Uh, but if we have a dog that's lived a happy go lucky life and then something happened, I want to look at that event because if that event from the dog's perspective uh, involved a fright for the dog's own safety, life, or injury, then there's a risk. I also want to look if the dog lost uh, control. Uh, and predictability, because those two factors really, really play in. Uh, and then I want to look at what happened after the incident, the the one to six months after, because that's normally what, what time it takes for, for this disorder to develop full blast out. And I want to look at the overall uh, mental state of the dog, how that has changed since before the uh, the incident, and also the vigilance and, and the arousal of the dog. And here I want to look at both active and passive coping, because some people just say, oh, my dog became really calm after the incident. And it's just another side of active stress, really. And also, it's hard to diagnose like depression in dogs, but we know PTSD and depression go hand in hand when we look at humans. But some owners also state that the dog has lost interest in activities they used to enjoy and they withdraw more or, or things like that. And so it's it's the overall emotional change. And we want to also see avoidance of triggers. So, so a reaction to triggers that are connected to the trauma event, but also an active avoidance of them or, or for a dog that could be trying to scare them away. Uh, I worked previously with a dog that was on a walk in a park with with her owner and uh, three guys came running and started kicking the dog. Uh, so this dog, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And this dog, of course, developed PTSD from this. Uh, she was unlucky, one of those 30%. And she had primary triggers as of people coming close to her very fast, running towards her, or legs or feet moving, of course. She got really, really angry and stressed. Uh, but also being in a park, on grass, outside, in daylight, nighttime, it was fine. And this is like typical symptoms of PTSD. And she had these nightmares, and and her overall just well-being was was affected really badly. Yeah. So I have, I have a question, a couple of things. One is, is I, like you when you're saying that some dogs shut down, what I'm trying to tell my owner sometimes is that what you need to understand is no behavior is not the same as good behavior. No behavior means there's something wrong with what's going on with your dog. Not that he's, you know, no behavior is not the same as good behavior. I also appreciated the fact that you talked about the treatment of symptoms. That's important because you have to ease the daily stress before you can really address that underlying cause. And I found that to be the same with with kids as well. If they're stressed, you have to treat the symptoms of their stress. You have to help them sleep. You have to give them good nutrition. You have to do all these things to support them so you can tackle the underlying problem. And it also helps the parents and the owners. It gives them something productive to do. It also shows them that some changes can be made. We're making progress. So it keeps their hope up as well. The one thing you also talked about that poor dog. I, I wish people could have seen Tina's in my face when you said that poor dog was was kicked. Both of us, I thought we were going to fall over. 
And then she had difficulty in going out in the park and with people. And which reminds me of one thing that uh, Patricia McConnell has said about trauma, that it's diffusive in both time and experience. That when you have this traumatic event, what happens is that, um, and I saw this with a client of mine whose dog was attacked by a, a dog in a park. It was a big black dog. And at first the dog was afraid of uh, black dogs. And then, no, it was big dogs. And then black dogs. And then any dogs. And then leaving my my backyard. I mean, all these things, more and more, the, the trauma was obviously repeating itself and becoming bigger for the dog so that his response had to become bigger. I have to be afraid of all dogs now. I have to be afraid of going out of my yard. I have to be afraid of all of these things that are much bigger than what the actual event was. So I wondered if you wanted to talk about that a little bit and what owners can look for when they suspect that there might be trauma and PTSD. Yeah, you're so true that uh, what happens with with the trauma that is not treated is that it grows. It goes from discriminating to black big dogs to all dogs and going out when the sun's out, you know. Uh, so it's really important to get them treatment fast. Uh, and I think what one needs to remember also is that you have to work in that pyramid. You have to start at the bottom, you know, and in the beginning, you have to make sure that the environment the dog is in is as trigger free as we can get it. Because when you're in that acute state and the dog is in that nightmare, just repeating itself, then they can't recuperate. They can't get better or be rehabilitated. So we really got to give them this really small framework to live in where everything is predictable, everything is safe, you know, just to get a really really good start um and and then i think what you have to do is when you start treating these dogs make sure that you do not revisit the traumatic event by restaging it too soon um uh, an example is i worked with a dog that that got stuck in an electrical fence you know that they have in the horse paddocks uh and he couldn't get out and the owner tried to get him out and she got the electricity in her and it was a, a big trauma for both of them and we couldn't start training him when we got to the trigger training part outside near horses or those electrical tapes. So we had to uh, record the little sound that it makes, you know, when electricity goes through the, the wires and, and start at home because home was safe. You know, when we started working with white ropes, we had to do it at home. So there's a big risk of, of flooding uh, if, if you go too soon and too quick to that trauma event. So I think what people, to get to your question there, Julia, what people have to look look for when, I mean, all dogs do not develop PTSD. So if your dog, you've been out uh, on your walk with your dog and, and it's been attacked by a dog, you're in a car accident with your dog or the dog is home alone and the fire alarm goes off or whatever, uh, what you have to look for is symptoms that if your dog has changed, if you don't recognize your dog, or if your dog starts the sleeping pattern changes, or if there's fright, fear, or, or or aggression or stress that you have not seen before, and you need to ask for help from a certified expert who works with ethical, modern, reward-based training quick um, to really help that dog. Because the longer time this anxiety syndrome gets to take place in the dog's body, it just sets in. Uh, and it takes even longer to treat it. So to quickly get help is the best, best advice. So what about for 
I, I absolutely understand like, okay, there's a traumatic event and the dog has already had a relationship with their people. Um, home is safe. You know, the whole, the whole list that you just gave. Uh, I'm curious about the dogs that are these street dog puppies who got like, we know we're rescuing them. They do not know that from their perspective. It's, you know, they're work, they're going to live with dragons. There's not an inciting incident. They don't have an affiliation with humans. They don't have that bond immediately. One of the biggest, the, the first pot cake we brought into our family was a young puppy, probably eight weeks. And it was amazing to me. It was the first puppy I've ever experienced. And my parents bred and showed dogs. Like I've had lots of a bazillion puppies over the years. It was the first puppy that when something scary happened that he perceived to be scary, he did not run to a person. He, he would try to get away. Right. And, and that included getting away from us. Now he doesn't do that anymore. Now if something scary happens, he runs to us. But that was the first thing I identified as really being a deviation from typical puppy, right? Who even puppies who, you know, they had a litter outside and mom got caught and then they went to the shelter or they were fostered somewhere. They're affiliative to the people. Like that's who's feeding them. This puppy did not come that way. He came going, no, all y'all are scary to, to coin a Southern phrase. And so we had to actually build our credibility because uh, my experience with a typical dog is if they're afraid of something that's novel and I, their loved human approaches the novel thing and goes, no, 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 it's just a fire hydrant. My credibility kind of washes over the fire hydrant and the dog goes, okay, maybe it's not a dragon with with the pot cake with these feral dogs the opposite seems to happen right that if i try to say to marco no that trash can isn't scary look mom's touching the trash can and not dying now the sketchiness of the trash can removes my credibility and now we're both terrifying so so these puppies like i've had marco since he was eight weeks old He's had no massive trauma living with us, right? I've observed him all that time. So I'm assuming that this is all genetic and and really when he was an infant that something happened, but we don't know what it is. It's everything for these dogs, typically. So can you speak a little bit to that kind of case? Yeah, absolutely. These cases are interesting when we do not know what's happened and and unfortunately, we can't ask them, or most of us can't. Um, and it's tricky. We have to look at the trigger picture. And in your case, it's hard because it's everything. But what you're also dragging us into, which I love, is attachment theory. And, and you know, that when a puppy so young has has had a disrupted attachment from either its mom or humans, and there's no one to trust. And the upbringing has been traumatic and there's no one in the world to trust, not even themselves, because they've been so young when this had happened and they couldn't have fended for themselves. So this is really tricky. And I think the goal, I say that to a lot of my clients, you know, with a PTSD dog, we can't have a goal that's, you know, a normal happy-go-lucky dog. They are a they are the memories and we can help them and, and we can protect them. Uh, and we can rehabilitate them to some extent, but the goal isn't for that dog to be whoever he was supposed to be if the trauma never happened, because that's not realistic at all. Uh, but with those young puppies that come and they're just scared of 
absolutely everything I want to start. And it doesn't matter if they come as a two-year-old, you know, and they haven't been allowed to be a puppy. You know, I want to take them back to puppyhood and I want that attachment to start building. And and to me, it's oxytocin. It's all about tactile massage. It's all about eye, eye contact, that biochemical loop between us as two species, the dog and the human, uh, where if we look at a dog and they look at us, oxytocin is released in both of our bodies and that tactile massage it's not just cuddling it's not a you know a physiotherapy massage it's just that tactile um soothing slow and long uh, massage all over the dog's body and really spend time on that on a daily basis and closeness to be close and you know align those heartbeats uh so that's how i would start with a young young puppy and and make that environment small again so there's not too many things in their life that actually trigger stress uh, and then start i would start with environmental training but without going to an environment staying at home if the home is okay just placing things out from the floor for the dog to explore uh, and move about on and 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 trying to find its own self-confidence around things that are a little bit scary. They're not triggered, but it's just a little bit unsure and try to build a confidence. And I would also uh, practice a lot of protection. I mean, to be the advocate for our dog and stand in front and protect them from things because they are scared they're fierce and they're demons they are real for them uh, so we can't just stand next to them and say oh never mind he's that postman is really sweet or you know don't mind that bus driving past we want to place them like if you look at a pack of dogs and if something is to threaten that pack there will be la- uh, these watchdogs <laughs> the ones that just scream really loud and go oh, there's someone coming you know and up runs the big bulky muscular guard dogs of course and we need to be that guard dog for these dogs like stand in front of them uh, and and pet them and treat them behind us while we fend off whatever is scary and I I have exercises like that so we have the dog behind us and somebody walks up to us at at a long distance and the owner gets to say stop my dog doesn't want to and the person, the decoy dog or, or the person, gets to turn around and run off really quickly. So the dog behind its owner feels that, oh, my mom's really great at this protection thing. And that becomes a sense of security because they, they haven't got a security in themselves. So we need to like take that stand and help them. Uh, and I tend to see with time, we can be less of a guard dog for them. Uh, and they can right. slowly you know, come out of their shell. So one of the things that's interesting to me is I think I like I've gotten to the point that I hate the word socialization. I just hate it because it's become something that we torture our dogs with instead of recognizing that it begins with the dog, right? That the dog sets the pace, not the human. I mean... I think it's a difficult thing. And and I do want to say this because I'll promote this on the on the pot cake um sites. No one who's working with these feral dog rescues is setting out to do anything to cause any harm. Their heart is a beautiful gift to the world that they are rescuing these dogs and they are getting them in better situations and they are loving them. And I'm crystal clear about that. Uh, and and thank God that they're doing it. Like there's a special, special place I have to believe in heaven for, for people who are doing that work. Marco, I have video of him long before I ever met him where he's like four or five weeks old. And even within his whole litter, 
he was the one who would shut down and cry when he was presented with a ramp that seemed a little steep for him, right? He just was more sensitive than some of his litter mates. Um, I think I too was arrogant. And when I got him went, well, I'm just, uh, you know, I've dealt with lots of sensitive dogs and I'm just going to socialize him and realized very quickly that that was not going to be a working plan for him, that, that I needed to slow down what I was doing and really give him the benefit of moving at a pace that was good for him. And I worry constantly for the dogs who end up with a regular trainer who does not understand behavior, even the the tiny bit that I do, because they're actually sensitizing the puppy, not desensitizing the puppy. Or in the yeah. case of an animal with PTSD, they're actually re-traumatizing. They're not desensitizing. They're not classically conditioning in a positive way at that moment. And it doesn't mean that the person's hitting them with a newspaper or shock. It can just be the lessons too big for that individual animal that day. So can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I see that a lot. I think that's the biggest mistake people do when they try, like you say, from the bottom of their kind heart to help these dogs that they actually overexpose them to the trigger. Uh, and in that situation, bringing out a toy or a treat, you know, uh, what I see is a lot of what I call poisoned cues or signals, you know, a poison toy or a poison treat. We we see dogs that won't take it. Swedish meatball, as we do use here, <laughs> you know, the, the the best kind of treats. And they they just turn their nose because they connect it to the, the trigger. So I think this is a really, really big mistake. And what I do with these dogs when we when we finally get to the trigger training, um, I, I ask the client to write the trigger list. Uh, and I want primary triggers and I want secondary triggers. And I want to break, really map, map the triggers out, break them down. So if we have a dog that's been in a car accident, I want to know, is it the sound? Is it the smell? Is it, you know, being in a car or is it walking up to a car? I want to know exactly what is it that triggers the stress, if it's possible to find out. And then I want to rank these triggers. So the ones that makes the dog the most stress is at the top and the least stress is at the bottom. And then we start with the mildest triggers. So we re and then we break them up into even smaller pieces. So if I have a dog that's really scared of big black dogs, for instance, like Julie mentioned, I, I don't want to go out in a park and start training with a big black dog. It, it can be about having this dog sit in the sofa close to its its owner with like pressure shirt or close contact, you know, like temple grounded, the 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 pressure blanket kind of feeling. Uh watching big black dogs on television, turn the sound off if the noise of them, you know, is triggering. Or if we have somebody in the neighborhood with a big black dog and that individual is frightening for this dog, then ask that neighbor to brush the dog and give us a bag of fur and hang that piece of fur bag and fur up in the hallway and just make a tiny little hole so there's a little little smell of it and and not too much um or if it's the bark of other dogs then we want to either record the individual dog that the dog is scared of or just have have dog barks and have it as on such a low volume that the dog hardly reacts to it and it's from that that you know that low down on the stress scale that we can actually start either desensitizing or counter conditioning uh, and i want to have like I always want to end with some kind of stress release. 
so that the dog gets to run, jump, or tug of war, or bark, and and it's all about thermodynamics, really. So the the it's there's no risk of trigger stacking or built up stress so once we're counter conditioned a bit i want the dog to run play jump or bark if it's taught on cue to to release the emotions and often i see that when we trigger train and say we have a dog that can bark on cue so we trigger train and then we ask the dog bark and the, in the beginning the dog might bark very fiercely and, and hard and aggressively but with training we can hear on that bark that it's not as intense anymore and that gives us a clue that the counter conditioning has actually worked we want to evaluate the training and get a receipt that yes this is working we can take it to the next level or if it's tug of war we might see that the dog is really frantic and 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 playing very roughly but with training we see the need to let out steam afterwards isn't as big and then that's a go ahead uh, another important thing when training these dogs is to give them, I said in the beginning that what they lost in the, the trauma incident is control and predictability. So we want to add that in the training. We want to make sure that the dog is aware of what's going to happen and that they can say yes or no. They can go, I don't want this or yes, let's do it. And and to make, make it a bit more practical, say I've got a dog that's scared of, of sound. So I'll ask him to go on a mat, I'll reward him for going on the mat, and then I'll ask, are you ready? And if I get get a con eye contact and the dog looks at me and says, yeah, go ahead, then I show him, okay, I'll press the button and we'll make that sound. And afterwards he gets to run after his treat or his toy. Uh, and if he comes back to the mat, he's saying, yes, I want more, but I'll still ask him, are you ready? And I want that look on me. And if, if the dog doesn't go back to the mat or doesn't look at me when I ask if he's ready, I will not make the sound. So that's a way of giving them predictability by saying what's going to happen and also giving them a choice because there's no, you can't, you know, rehabilitate them over their head and just force it on them. They have to want it. They have to like want to face their demons. Right. And they also need to know that they can make it stop. Right. Yeah. Or, or we run a much greater risk. And I think humans are, I think a lot of us are just designed that 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 idea of letting the dog tell us no can be, um, well, before you get good at it, before you get good at hearing no from your dog, um, I think it it uh, generates anxiety in the human that the dog's never going to get better. The dog's never going to say yes. Like if I give him a choice, he's always going to tell me no. And the reality is that that's that's, I get way more yeses because I accept a no than I would have ever been able to achieve if I had um, been disappointed or frustrated when my dog told me no and not thank them for the information. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are scared of letting go of control and they think that will make their dog become uncontrollable. But giving the dog control makes the dog more um what would you say uh confident and, and feeling secure uh an example of that like i had this dog i was working with this little pomeranian and he was at the groomers and this groomer was really handling him harsh i mean it was horrible how he pushed him down in the table and and you know when he was growling and didn't want his nails trimmed he was really harsh to this and it was a very young dog a, a young puppy it wasn't a, a five-year-old that had, had great grooming experience and then something happened he had hardly had any experiences and then this happened uh so we started uh what we call fear-free handling or fe- force-free handling i don't know what you call it in the u.s but yeah so we started training but i i i 
have always have these starting signals, you know, are you ready? Um, and sometimes I present my hand and, and, and not the palm of my hand, but the back of my hand. And when I moved it towards him, he kept moving away. And I was like, that's fine. I'll take my hand away and still treat him. So that's important that it's not you have to accept this to get your treat because he was eager to get the treat. So I made sure he knew even if he said no or even if he said yes, he got the treat. And then I stopped actually moving my hand towards him. Instead, I, I just waited for him to lean into my hand and the slightest little tendency to just move towards me, I'd reward straight away. And after a while, it was not me touching him. It was him nudging up to me. And, and that's really giving them control. The same with like sound training. Um, I mean, we can make sound games where, where we let the dog create the sound themselves. But what, what a lot of people do, say you put out a paper bag and some tin foil and you spread some treats on and have like a, a metal dish with some cutlery on. Uh, but if you're stood there going, go on, go ahead, play it out. You know, you're actually applying pressure to that poor animal and they're not finding their own courage. They're rather feeling that they must because they they want to please you so what I normally do is I just place those things out and I leave the room I go and do whatever I want and day one two three the dog might not touch it but day four five they might be there and just nudge a few of those pieces of treats and not actually on all those surfaces but maybe just around them and that's a start you know that's a, and all we need is a start all we need is a dog to look at its demons and say all right let's go you know, one of the things I was thinking when you were talking about this is, is I would talk to my owners about being their dog's advocate. You know, you, I am giving you permission to say no to that person who's coming up to you. And I think if we tie the idea of I am my dog's advocate, which means I also am providing my dog with agency. So I think that if you're talking about giving dogs permission to say no, that's all tied into being the very best advocate you can be for that dog. And so I think sometimes if we talk about it in that terms, then it doesn't seem so much like I'm losing control. No, I am actually still in control because I'm you know, giving agency to my dog. So I think these things are really tied together. Um, so I have a couple of things. One is when you were talking about if dogs are afraid of other dogs, do you ever use like stuffed dogs as? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I think. Yeah, that's speakers. So, yes. Yeah. And then, you know, like I have uh, sitting up there, I have a, a, my husband gave me for an anniversary, a, a stuffed flat coated retriever, you know, toy. And uh, which my then Clumber Spaniel thought it was his, but no, it's. <laughs> Anyway, um, so I was thinking those are also really good for being able to provide a visual for a dog without it being something that is so overwhelming because it doesn't smell like a dog and it doesn't move and it may not make any noise, but it looks like a dog. So this might be a good beginning. Then the other thing is I was thinking when you're talking about not being able, I think it's so important for people to understand what we can and cannot do to bring this dog back. And I thought you're you know, you're saying that I cannot turn this dog into Lassie. And that was one of the things I always try to tell people. Your dog, I'm, you know, my sister is an occupational therapist who works with um, kids, pediatric occupational therapist. And one of the things she talks about, she has this rainbow guide. And so she says, I can bring you up maybe two colors. So if you're red, we might be able to get to yellow, but we're not getting up to green. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you're at, um, at orange, we might be able to get, you know, past yellow and up to the edge of the green. Or if you're in yellow, we might be able to get to, to blue. But, you know, you have to understand that I can't expand the whole rainbow for you. 
And so I thought that was an important thing for, for people to understand. We can bring your dog just so far. Then my last question, because those were all comments, um, is do you ever um, use medication with these dogs? Do you find that there are anti-anxiety medications that are helpful in this whole process? And could you address that, please? Mm. I also always want to start with the, the least aversive, you know, treatment plan. Uh, and sometimes we check out supplements. We try thunder shirts and adaptile collars and, and, you know, whatever, just to see. But with PTSD dogs, some of them, especially complex PTSD, and if the dog has suffered for many years and, and gone untreated, all those supplements can be a bit like, you know, one little drop in the Atlantic. So it's not enough. Um, and I have great collaborations with vets here and, and, We've started using more and more medication, but over a period of time, uh, a few clients have to use it, the dog's entire lifetime. They have really complex PTSD, but we always start with a very low dose and, and work our way up. And, and now we use more medication for anxiety disorder rather than just stress. So there, there's different types for it. So, yeah, in some cases, it, it's the number one go-to to be able to get that dog to actually process emotions. I used to be pretty dogmatically anti-meds, and I yeah, was too. wrong, and I cost a dog his life, right? Mm -hmm. A bite occurred that probably wouldn't have occurred if we had medicated. So I'm going to have to, you know, answer to, to God about that. But the... I'm not dogmatically anti-meds anymore the same way that I, I just view it as it's a different kind of pain and we treat pain. Yeah. Right. And so if you can't, like, it, it's interesting, like you were talking about like doing massage for these pot cake, many of them, the idea of you putting a thunder shirt on them or doing massage or even making eye contact is like beyond the pale there. Are, I have people who own pot cakes who live with them, that they can't touch the dog and the dog will not eat when they're in the home or awake, yeah. right? They, they can't put a collar or a leash on the dog. So, um, so sometimes those are the dogs where I'm like, okay, well, we need a, we need to be able to get a toenail on a piece of ground somewhere. And in those cases, a lot of times medication is where we have to start because, the dog may have lived with the person three years and they've literally never touched their dog except the day that they brought him home when the dog was like catatonic. So these can be very, very severe cases. Um, and it doesn't mean that any human did anything wrong, right? It can be that damage happened before. Yeah. Or it can be an accident that was nobody's fault, you know? Right. And, Baby and gate fell over. Yeah, exactly. And when we're on the topic of medication and, you know, veterinary medicine, uh, I, I see that now, now we've, I've spread the word quite a lot in, in Sweden. Uh, people uh, reach out to me if their, their dog has experienced something that they think is potentially trauma, traumatizing. And what we want to do is get them to a vet quick and get some anxiety relief medication in them just for a few weeks or a month, because that really helps the disorder not to be able to, to grab onto the dog and set roots. So that's kind of a, also a proactive um, measurement. Uh, and something else that's important, uh, a lot of people uh, used to think that, you know, neutering, if we have a dog that's not scared, frightened, but 
uh, or the symptom of it is rather aggression. Before, quite a lot of people in, in Sweden used to think that, you know, you just have to neuter them. We have to lower the testosterone. But the risk for these dogs is that without that courage that's in that testosterone, that their dogs get even worse. So I'm happy to see a change here where neutering isn't, you know, the quickest and, and fastest go-to uh, in these cases or other aggression cases. Uh, but something I also do with these clients very early on when we meet is that I want to make sure that the dog hasn't got any diseases or pain because the symptoms of pain are very, very similar to the symptoms of PTSD. So I look through the dog and feel through the dog if I'm allowed to get near the dog. Otherwise, I film the dog and zoom in and look and the owner gets to touch the dog. And then I send it all to the vet that does a really thorough check through. Um, because if there is some kind of pain in the body, um, we risk not knowing what we're working with. So we really want to, you know, put out that fire first if it's a, a factor affecting the dog. We know one of the things that sometimes happens is that you see a, a sudden change in your dog's behavior, but you don't think anything happened. I was like, I, you know, that's when I always say you, before we go down some long behavior modification program, which mine was always three pronged as well. Um, okay. I'm like, you need the first thing we're going to do. Cause I won't see your dog until you see your vet and do a yeah. thorough assessment for pain because that could be, as you said, just the underlying cause. And let's treat that. And then we can, you know, go from there. But I, I'm really glad you said that because people sometimes think with a sudden change in their dog's behavior, something must have happened. And that's not necessarily true. The other thing I always try to encourage people to is as your dog gets older, when you're talking about dogs who are six, seven, eight and older, they should routinely be assessed for pain. Because our dogs yeah. necessarily tell us, but it's likely that they are all developing a little bit of arthritis and that you may see a change in their behavior, even slightly. And that could be due to pain. Or we might be less tolerant of the grandkids or the kids coming and petting me because I don't feel well because I my, my hips hurt. So I, I, I honestly think that um, raising that awareness in owners as well as in vets, you know, and mm -hmm. My vet got to the point where somebody was like, well, Julie Smith, and he goes, oh, you need me to assess for pain, do you? <laughs> you know, because my vet began to understand, this is what I need you to do because we're in cahoots together to try and treat this dog, give it the best life possible. Yeah. And I think for practitioners like us, it's really important to have that close collaboration with vets. And sometimes I see things in dogs when they're like in the dog park or or at the clinic when I see them and when they go to the vets they're like oh tighten up and the vet can't see anything uh and and that's why we need that collaboration so I can actually show them but this is what the dog looks like on gravel outdoors you know and not in at the clinic and sometimes our vets say that okay we'll just try pen, pain relief we can't see anything we can't see anything on the x-rays but we'll try pain relief and if that actually has a positive effect then we need to keep looking because that it's information so we need to also be be open to these trials of, of medication when we pain assess. Very good. Okay. Well, um, Caroline, we are almost near the end of our time together. This has been a fabulous conversation. I think Tina and I are absolutely thrilled to the core that you were here to join us. And um, we want to give you a chance. Is there anything that we have not covered that you would like our listeners to know about PTSD and their dogs? Well, I think the key to, you know, to solve PTSD in dogs 
is to be aware of what can cause it. And in my study, the biggest, there was one common denominator, and that was humans. And it was harsh punishments, and it was, it was domineering, it was violence, it was neglect. Uh, and that's really important. So I was going to say trust no one, but, you know, you can't overprotect your dog. They need to, to you know, develop and, and learn. But be aware of, of these factors and don't let anybody do anything to your dog that you are not comfortable with. Okay. That's great. Um, I was, uh, with your permission, I'm going to put the link to your paper on our website that goes with this. I have um, also, too, you have a new app that you wanted to mention that uh, is now available in the United States, not just in Sweden, so that you don't have to speak Swedish or read Swedish to use this app. So if you want to just mention that real quick, I want to make sure that we have that on the uh, the website as well. Yeah, I've created the Petly app, which is an app for dog owners, for all dogs. And it's full of proactive training and it's all ethical, modern and, and reward based. And it's like a lifelong journey and it's a hand holder. It's a guiding dog life. There's all these courses and articles and, and filmed step-by-step -step video guides. And we have experts in form of physiotherapists and vets and, and people like me in the app asking questions. So you don't need to go online and get bad bad answers to big questions you can go into the petly app and we're there to coach and guide you uh so the petly app has just been released in uh the the us and in english so it's just to head into google play or the app store and download it thank you so much it's been such a joy to have you caroline and we would love to have you back sometime we would I love it thank you very much for having me it was a blast thank you so much for blessing all the people who listen to the podcast and we wish you the very best. I'm so glad you're out there making the world a better place for dogs. Thank you. And the best to you. Thanks for doing your job the way you do it. Thank All right. You. Well, thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time on your family dog. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to your family dog. Got questions, interesting ideas, visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts. <laughs>